fourth and fifth graders, you can be dismissed to your class at this time. Uh, the rest of us, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, you might remember that uh, about a month ago, back in June, I know it's been a while, but, uh, but I preached from this passage about how we are to be growing into maturity as Christians and as a church. And I talked about we're to be growing in likeness to Christ in every way possible. That's really what spiritual growth is. It's growing into likeness to Christ. And last time I, I preached from this passage in Ephesians, and I focused specifically on the mind. And on the parts of this passage where Paul draws attention to the condition of our minds. And so we, we talked from this passage about how our minds before we came to know Christ, were darkened and futile, that they were blind to the glory of God. We talked about how when we came to know Christ, God lifted the veil from our minds so that our minds could now see and understand and comprehend the glory of God in the gospel. And now we talked about how now that we are, have been saved as believers, we have a renewed mind but not yet a perfected mind. And so until our death or until Christ's return, we are to be renewing our minds constantly by setting them on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. And we talked about how when we became Christians, God does not wish for for us to check our minds at the door. But he wishes to engage our minds and to grow our minds with high and holy affections for him. and, And to grow our minds with high thoughts of him and knowledge of him. So that was a, about a month ago. That's a quick review. Now this week we're going to preach from the same passage, but we're going to move from the head to the heart. So that's how we talked about the mind. Now we're going to talk about growing into maturity in our hearts and what that might look like. Because as I said last time, we are to be growing in likeness to Christ in every way possible. In our minds, in our hearts, and then in our our daily lives, in our actions. So that our maturity should should be well-rounded, involving every facet of our beings. That's what we're after in spiritual growth uh, as individual Christians and as a church. So last time was the mind. Today we move on to the heart. And all that being said, let's begin in verse 17. We'll read verses 17 through 19. Uh, if you're new here, just a warning, your, your, your version of the Bible may sound a little bit different than mine or even from a little different from your neighbors next to you. That's okay. It's all the same meaning. I'm starting in verse 17. It says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if you remember from last time, in those three verses, the Apostle Paul is specifically describing the life of the unbeliever. We know that because he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You might remember Gentile is kind of a general way at that time to describe a person who doesn't know Christ. 
So he's using these three verses to describe the life and the condition of the unbeliever. All right, so, so look at those three verses again and notice the things he says about the condition of the unbeliever's heart. Right, the first thing I notice is in verse 18 where he says, talks about the, the darkness of their understanding, their alienation or separation from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Right, hardness of heart is one of the things he mentions as being one of the, the distinguishing marks or conditions of the unbeliever. Now, what does it mean to have a hardness of heart? Jonathan Edwards, I think, put it well when he, he described it this way. He said, Now, by a hard heart is plainly meant an unaffected heart, or a heart not easy to be moved with virtuous affections, like a stone, insensible, unmoved, and hard to be impressed. Hence, the hard heart is called a stony heart and is opposed to a heart of flesh that has feeling and is sensibly touched and moved. So in other words, a a hard heart is, is just that. It's a hard, stony heart. A heart that's not moved, stirred, or affected by the glory of God. A hard heart is a heart that is not moved, stirred, or affected by the glory of God because it's hard and insensitive to the things of God. This is why the Bible, if you're familiar with it, will repeatedly describe unbelievers in this way. It frequently frequently mentions people having a hard heart or people hardening their hearts against God. So, for example, think of the book of Exodus when Pharaoh was said to harden his heart against God. This was during uh, all the the plagues as uh, God was bringing them down on Egypt. And he was telling them time after time, let my people go. And so Pharaoh saw all of these plagues. He saw God's glory displayed in all of these miraculous, powerful, wondrous ways. And yet his heart, being hardened, refused to be sensitive to the glory of God, and he refused to obey God and let his people go. Now, if you really think about this, this makes absolutely no sense, does it? If you think about Pharaoh and what he did in Egypt with the people of Israel. So you have God telling him, okay, let my people go. He refuses once. So God begins to bring these plagues down on Egypt. And so Pharaoh saw... God turned all the water of Egypt into blood. He saw God blot out the sun for a day. He saw God bring plagues of gnats, flies, locusts, frogs. He saw God kill all the Egyptian livestock. And then he saw God bring death to all the firstborn of Egypt. So Pharaoh saw all of these things. He saw God's clear sovereignty, saw God's power over all creation displayed in all of these acts. And after all of that, Pharaoh had the audacity to look God in the face and go, eh, not impressed. Then he refused to let Israel go. Now, again, as you said, this makes no sense. Having seen God's power and sovereignty on display, why would he not just let them go? Just go. 
right? Clearly you are God. Clearly you are all powerful and sovereign over all of creation. So go, have your way. You are Lord. I am not. Yet he did it. He said no and continued to disbelieve and refused to walk in obedience. So why? Because his heart was hardened. His heart was insensitive to the things of God, unable to be moved, stirred, or affected by the glory of God, even when it was on display in such power and glory. And so having his hardened heart, he could not sense the glory of God in those things, and he refused to obey God as a result. For another example, think of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Never had such a full and wondrous display of the glory of God appeared on earth. He was God come down in the flesh. Living, walking, breathing, talking, performing miracles among us. Yet when he came preaching, teaching, performing miracles, doing these things, displaying the glory of God so fully and perfectly... many people refused to believe in him. They they, they literally heard words come out of the mouth of Jesus. They literally saw him perform miracles. Yet like Pharaoh, they saw these things, these displays of God's glory, and after seeing that, they looked at him and went, eh, not impressed. And again, this makes no sense to us, doesn't it? How can you see the person of Jesus in front of you, speaking, teaching, performing miracles, and yet refuse to believe? Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were insensitive, stony, unable to be moved, stirred, or affected by the glory of God. So that even when it was on full display, right in front of their eyes, eyes, they had no ability to sense it because of their hard hearts. So when Paul speaks of the hardness of heart in Ephesians 4.18, he's talking about this total insensitivity to the things of God. This this inability to be moved, stirred, or affected by the glory of God, even when it's on display right in front of us. In fact, he continues this thought in verse 19 when he says, They have become callous. Your translation might read, uh, They don't care anymore. Mine says, They have become callous. Now, the word callous is a good literal translation of the Greek here because the Greek word used here literally has the meaning of a callous on the skin that keeps you from feeling pain or keeps you from feeling anything else. Now, we've all had calluses. Uh, I, I know being an athlete, I, was, I would always develop calluses on my, my feet, hands. I always kind of liked them because it kept me from feeling pain I otherwise would have felt. But just think of the calluses that you may have right now or that you've had in the past. That over time it develops this hardness. That layer after layer of skin develops. And soon that layer of skin and that spot is so hard that you really can't feel 
anything. You can't feel pain or anything at all. Now imagine for a second what it might look like for a heart to be calloused over. To be so hardened, so built up that it lacked all sensitivity. That had no, no feeling left in it. It was just this hard, calloused, stony heart. Right, this is the picture that Paul is giving us in verse 19 when he says that they have become callous. This is our greatest problem as human beings. Our greatest problem as human beings is not that we do bad things, but that we are bad in the very core of our beings. If you look at the list of sins that Paul lists in verse 19, he talks about their hardness of heart, and he goes on to list these sins. He says that they have uh, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And you'll notice that he says that these things that they do are the result of, or they're due to their hardness and callousness of heart. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that the bad things, the evil things, the sins they commit are nothing more than the outworkings or the symptoms of their hardness of heart. And so it is with us. Our greatest problem is not that we do bad things. Yes, that's bad. But our greatest problem is that our hearts are hard and stony. There's a disease in us that needs cured. And until that's cured, the symptoms will continue to work themselves out in our daily lives. This is why Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. At the heart is the fountainhead of our lives. That whatever is in it is eventually going to end up coming out of our mouths, in our hands. And so what is in our hearts will ultimately determine what happens in our lives and what comes out of our mouths. So again, this means that our greatest problem as sinful, fallen humans is not that we merely do bad things but that we have bad hearts, hardened hearts, calloused, stony hearts that are insensible and unaffected by the glory of God. And that out of the abundant hardness of our hearts, our mouths speak and our hands work. That the individual sins we commit are nothing more than the symptoms of a greater problem in us. Now, let me give you an illustration here. Let's say that tomorrow morning, I wake up with a headache. All right, no big deal. But over the next few days, I begin developing a nagging cough. And over the next few days, I start developing skin sores all over my body that begin to seep and bleed. Kind of gross, I know, but bear with me. But a few days after that, I develop a bad fever. And a few days after that, I begin just dropping weight for seemingly no reason. Like any normal human being, what am I thinking? Something's wrong with me. 
Like, there's something wrong with my body. Yeah, the, the headache, it started with that. That was weird. The fever, okay. But I take all these things together now, all these symptoms at once, something's wrong. And so I begin to worry, that, you know, what, what could this be? What, what is wrong with me? I need to go to the doctor, and I need to see what's up with this. So I go to the doctor, I tell him all my symptoms, and I tell him about the headache, the cough, the, the skin sores, the fever, uh, the, the weight loss. He listens, he, he, he spends a little time thinking about it, you know, pondering what this could be, uh, what it, how he might possibly treat it. After spending a little bit of time thinking about it, he, he finally goes, okay, I heard all your symptoms, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a bottle of ibuprofen to take care of the headaches and the fever. How about some cough syrup and some cough drops? That'll take care of your cough. I'll give you some band-aids, maybe some uh, neosporin for your sores. That'll, that'll kind of help clear those up. And then I'm going to give you a doctor's note that'll tell you to double your calorie intake. That, that should take care of the weight loss. And he sends me on my way. So I thank the doctor, I leave his office, and I, I be, begin to take his prescribed means. Taking the ibuprofen, putting the band-aids on, uh, taking the cough drops, the cough syrup, just doubling my calorie intake. And soon, within about a week or two, I'm feeling pretty good. My headache and my fever are under control from the ibuprofen. My cough has kind of subsided. My skin sores are beginning to close up and heal. I'm starting to gain back weight. And I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. Like, I'm better. I'm good. My symptoms are clearing up. I'm feeling better. Clearly, I must be okay. And then three months later, I die. What went wrong? I was feeling better. I thought I was doing well. What went wrong was that the doctor failed to treat the disease. He merely treated the symptoms. Right, true healing comes not from just masking symptoms, but from treating the core issue, the root cause, the very disease. So see, my greatest problem in that illustration wasn't my headache, my fever, my stress, my, my weight loss, or my, or my cough. My greatest problem was whatever disease that would be deep down inside of me. Now, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea what that would be. I just made that up. Some of you might be in the crowd thinking, oh, I know exactly what that would be. Don't worry, just an illustration. Don't know what it would be. But the symptoms are not my greatest problem. The greatest problem is that the disease, whatever that might be. And until that disease is cured, the symptoms, I mean, those are secondary we can mask those, but until we treat the disease, true healing won't come. It's the same thing with our hearts. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17:9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are the very core of our beings are sick. Deceitful, desperately wicked, hard, calloused, insensitive to the glory of God. So we can try all we want to treat the symptoms of our individual sins, but until the disease of our hearts is cleared up, we will make no real progress. 
and we will experience no real healing. And so we can, we can try hard to set rules and, and parameters to keep us from sinning in specific ways. Right? We can do certain things and try really hard to not do certain things, whatever that might be. But we can only mask the symptoms for so long. And until the disease of our hearts are treated, that disease will end up catching up to us. Right? And our disease, our greatest problem, is not that we do bad things, but that we are bad in the very core of our beings. That we have bad, hard, stony, sick hearts. And in order for us to experience salvation, we must not merely have our symptoms treated, but we must have our disease treated and cured. And unless we can find a way to treat our own disease of our hearts, we will experience no salvation. We are simply lost and hopeless sinners. Now turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's going to be Old Testament, a ways back. But Ezekiel 36. So our greatest problem is that, not that we do bad things, but that we have bad hearts. And that until the disease of our hearts is treated, we cannot and will not experience salvation. And we are lost and hopeless sinners. One of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel is that God doesn't merely treat our symptoms. He treats our disease. He's not a bad doctor. He's not like the doctor that I went to in my illustration that just gave me some band-aids and some cough syrup. No, God goes to the very heart of the issue and he resolves the heart issue and then trusts the symptoms to work themselves out as they may, knowing that the disease is cured. So this is talked about in a number of places in scripture, but Ezekiel 36 is probably the clearest place that talks about this. We're going to be reading verses 24 through 27. Now, in this passage, God is speaking through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel. He's addressing their, uh, their sinfulness, that they just keep doing the same things, keep rebelling against him over and over. And finally, after telling them to stop numerous times, God says, enough. And he says this, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Here are the key verses, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 26 and 27 are the key verses. God, after finally all this rebellion of Israel, God tells them, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come in. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and replace that with the heart of flesh. 
And notice the order that he puts this in. He tells him that in verse 26, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Then verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you. And only after telling them that he will give them a new heart of flesh and his spirit in them, does he tell them, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. In other words, I will treat your disease first. And after your disease is treated, your symptoms, your, your actions, your daily lives, and your words will begin to take care of themselves. Because the disease has been treated. Your stony heart will be replaced by a heart of flesh. Right, so what is the heart of flesh? Well, it's the opposite of the heart of stone. It's the opposite of the hard heart. So if the hard heart is unmoved and unaffected, insensitive to the glory of God, the heart of flesh is the heart that sees the glory of God, the heart that senses it, is moved and stirred and affected by it, and then is drawn to it. So that that God himself becomes the great object of desire for the heart of flesh. God tells him that this is what I'm going to do. I will replace your hard heart that is insensitive to me. I will take that, replace it with a heart of flesh that now sees and senses my glory, is affected deeply by it, and is now drawn to it. This is what God tells Israel he is going to do. And for us now, on the other side of the cross, the reality of the gospel is that through Christ's life, death, resurrection, this has happened. That through our faith in him, we are united to him. And when we come to know Christ as our Savior, God performs this heart transplant on us. We have a new heart. He removes our heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh. And so the good news of the reality is that for us in here who have turned to Christ in faith, this has been done. We have a new heart of flesh. God does not merely treat our symptoms. He treats the disease. At our conversion, the Holy Spirit came in, dwelt us, removed our heart of stone, replaced it with a heart of flesh, so that our greatest problem has been dealt with. This is the gospel. The gospel is not try harder and be a better person. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus and be made new. Believe on the Lord Jesus and receive a new heart that will inspire you to love God and cause you to walk in obedience. This has been done in us. So if you are in Christ this morning, then I want to encourage you and assure you that you have a new heart of flesh. Right, to those who have not believed on the name of Christ, I again plead with you. Right, believe on the Lord Jesus. Have your hard heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. And for the first time, see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Right, believe and be saved. Now, you might be asking, what might it look like to have this heart of flesh? What might it look like to have a heart of flesh that is now sensitive to the glory of God? 
A heart that is now drawn to him, that is moved by him. A heart that holds him up as the greatest object of our desire and joy. But there are a few passages of scripture that I want to highlight. All right, many of them are from the Psalms. The first one is Psalm 1611. The psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? See the cry of the new heart of flesh. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing have I asked of the Lord, or one thing does my heart desire of God, and that is the one thing I will seek after and pursue. What is that thing? To dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. How about the passage that Troy read for our call to worship today? Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. <clears throat> my heart and my flesh my, my, may fail, but God is my portion forever. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul's heart was so set on Christ, so smitten with him, so drawn to him as his great object of desire, that he was willing to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that I may, get, that I may gain Christ. Or 1 Peter 1.8, he writes, Though you have not seen him, which is us, we have not seen him face to face yet. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right? What a great verse to describe the state of our hearts here as believers while we're still on this earth. Though we have not seen him, we believe in him. And not only do we believe in him, but we rejoice in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. All of these passages describe the, the cry, the heart cry of the new heart of flesh that God has given us who are in Christ. So if you are in here and you are a true Christian, you need to know that these, these affections, these, these emotions, these things, they are in your heart. Even if you don't feel these all the time, they are in there. You have the new heart of flesh. The heart of flesh says these things. The heart of flesh cries out these things to the Lord. And you have that in you. So now, what does this have to do with us growing into maturity as Christians and as a church? Let's recap. If you are a Christian, if you have been joined to Christ through faith in him, God has treated your disease. He has removed your hardened heart of stone. He has replaced it with a, a soft heart of flesh, a heart that is drawn to him, a heart that loves him, 
heart that holds him up as this great object of desire and joy. And this has been done in you who are in Christ. So now, for you who are in Christ, having this new heart of flesh, we must be nurturing this new heart that God has given us. Nurturing it to love God more. Stirring up our affections with the glory of God so that he becomes our object of desire more and more and more. Back in Ephesians 4, a little bit further down, Paul talks about putting on the new self. Starting in verse 20, he begins to talk about our lives now. He begins in verses 17 through 19 talking about the life of the unbeliever. Verse 20 shifts to talking about the believers and addressing them. And, And among other things that he tells them, One of the things he tells them in verse 24 is to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. Part of our putting on the new self as Christians now is putting on the new heart. It's nurturing the heart of flesh that God has given us in his grace. Our sinful, deceitful desires of our hardened heart have been replaced with pure and holy desires to know God more, to love him more. We now see his glory and are deeply moved and affected by it. And so what does this mean for us? This means that when we walk into church on Sunday mornings, or when we walk into a Bible study, or, we, or whatever it might be, a Sunday school class, I don't know. That we shouldn't just be eager to walk in and learn something. We shouldn't just be eager to walk in and to engage our minds. We should, that's important, but that's not all we should be eager to do. Likewise, we should not only be eager to glean some piece of practical advice or wisdom so that we can apply in our daily lives. Yes, we absolutely should. We should be engaged in our hearts. We should be engaged in our daily lives with practical advice and wisdom. But we must not neglect our hearts. We must not check our hearts at the door. So that when we walk into church or a Bible study or or whatever it might be, we should not only be eager to learn something and to gain practical wisdom, but also to deeply engage our hearts with the love for God. By setting before our hearts his glory so that our hearts are growing in their hunger to know him and love him more. Likewise, we do our personal devotions. We don't just walk to our Bible in the morning or whatever time of day that you would do this. Eager to grow our minds and stimulate our mind with some interesting fact. That's good, but we don't just do that. We don't merely go to it eager to find some piece of advice or wisdom to help us this day. Although we do do that, and that's a good thing. We must do those things while also going to our Bibles, going to the Lord in prayer, eager to engage our hearts, eager to set before them God in all his glory, that they might develop a greater and greater hunger for him. 
Right? We must not check our hearts at the door. If we are to be growing into maturity as Christians, we must be engaging and deepening our new hearts as Christians. And ultimately, this is the truest, most lasting, and most effective path of transformation in growing into maturity as a Christian. God has treated our disease, not just our symptoms. We have been given a new heart of flesh that is sensitive to his glory, a heart that is stirred and moved and affected deeply by the glory of God so that he has become the great object of our desire and joy. And as we press on towards maturity, we must make sure that we are continuing to treat the disease that remains in us by continuing to nurture this love for God in our hearts. We still have a sinful nature. We still have a sinful nature. And so we press on towards maturity, towards Christ-likeness. We continue to treat the disease or our sinful nature in us by nurturing our hearts. And as we nurture this love for God in our hearts, as our hearts become increasingly moved and affected by his glory, so our hearts will become more and more satisfied with him. The more satisfied our hearts become with God, the less our hearts will be satisfied with sinful pleasures. Sin ultimately arises from a broken affection in the human heart. Take whatever sin you will, pride, lust, greed, selfishness, whatever sin you take, it ultimately arises from a broken affection in our hearts. That our hearts see something as being desirable, and then we go after it. What's the best way to dislodge a broken affection from the human heart? What's the best way to dislodge a broken affection from the human heart? We can try really hard to just kick it out and displace it, but what's the best and most effective way to displace a broken affection from the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. God is that beautiful thing. God himself Knowing and enjoying him. He is the beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing that will satisfy the affections of our hearts. Augustine said it well back in 400, that our hearts were created for him, and until we find him, our hearts will be restless. Because only he has the glory, the beauty to fill up the affections of our heart. So we dislodge a broken affection in our hearts by replacing it with a more beautiful thing, a truer affection for Christ. And this is how we pursue growth and maturity. That when we come into church or a Bible study, we do our personal devotions. We don't merely engage our minds or our, our hands with, with things to do, but we engage our hearts by setting before them God in all his glory so that our hearts will see him, see how beautiful he is, be captivated by him and be drawn to him. And as that happens, your heart's grip on sinful desires will be loosened. I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and come forward as we close.
All right, last month, I know it was a while ago, but we said that God does not wish for us to check our minds at the door when we come to know Christ. But we said that God wishes to engage our minds with high and holy thoughts of him, growing in our knowledge of God, learning more, learning sound doctrine, growing in our knowledge of it, learning how to set our mind on Christ and think thoughts that are pure and true and excellent and holy. And in the same way, God does not wish for us to check our hearts at the door, but he wishes to engage our hearts with high and holy affections for him. Growing into maturity in our minds is good and necessary. Something we should be pursuing as Christians. But we must not leave our hearts behind. So as we renew our minds now with the truths of God and his word, we must be sure that that truth is not just entering into our minds and just staying there, stagnant. We must allow it to seep down from our hearts our minds, into our hearts so we're not only transforming our minds but also transforming our hearts. And as our minds are renewed, as our hearts are renewed and transformed, our lives will begin to be renewed and transformed. If I go back to that illustration where I went to the doctor, let's say I would have gone to the doctor and he would have found some serious disease with me. And instead of merely treating my symptoms, he goes, okay, we're going to treat this disease. And he does, and he does it successfully. He removes the disease and replaces it with good health. My disease has been cleared up. Now that that's cleared up, my symptoms, they'll begin to take care of themselves. Right? The heart is the fountainhead of our lives. If the heart is pure and good, then it will naturally bring out that which is pure and good. And so we renew our minds with thoughts of God. And we renew our hearts, our new hearts, with pure and true affections for God. And as we do that, we also work for the transformation of our daily lives. Because it's ultimately the transformation of all three that we're after as you grow into maturity. And it's that that we'll talk about next week, the transformed life. As we get ready to sing here, I want to end with this quote, another quote by Jonathan Edwards. He said this in regards to congregational singing. He said, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. So in other words, God has appointed us to sing in church for the purpose of exciting or stirring up our hearts for affections for God and then also for the purpose of expressing those to him and to the other believers present. Right, God has appointed that we sing not just for no reason, but to stir up our hearts for him. And then as our hearts are stirred up, to express those in song and in words. Now, would you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you are the only thing that can satisfy our hearts. 
we know that you have created us to know you. You've created our hearts to be satisfied in you. Yet, God, we also know that in our sin, that we have hardened our hearts, that we have no sensitivity to your glory. Yet, God, we thank you that in Christ, we find a healing of our disease, that when we came to know you, not only treated our symptoms, but you gave us a new heart of flesh. So, Lord, we pray now that you would give us hearts, nurture our hearts that love you. Give us hearts that are full of affections for you. Let us as individuals and as a church continue to grow and nurture our hearts. Father, you alone can satisfy our restless hearts. And we pray that you would help each one of us here to be satisfied by you. May you be the great object of our desire. And Father, I pray now for anybody here today who does not yet know you. God, I pray that by your grace, you would send your spirit to shine light into the darkness of their hearts, that they might see your glory and believe. Father, let today be a day of salvation, a day when a heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is given instead. So Father, we sing now to express and to stir up our affections for you. To you alone be the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.